got a uh, small Bible here for my funerals and weddings. And before I tried it out on a funeral, I wanted to practice with it today. So maybe I'll be able to see it, maybe not. <clears throat> it is, I've noticed, getting harder and harder to speak, um, you know, with this asthma and all the things that happen with it. Uh, however, after what Jim just said, I'm not going to complain. Um, silly things to complain about. The other thing is I, I've noticed once in a while you'll get someone uh, talking, teaching uh, about the very thing that you're, you're teaching that day. And Jim was able to hit this week and next week in what he was talking about. And so I, I hope that uh, it reflects upon your life. I hope that you apply the things that we learned from Scripture today. Uh, I am recovering. I made a mistake yesterday, a big mistake. Uh, my son said, hey, Dad, let's go out and play soccer. That wasn't the mistake. The mistake was I said, okay. That was the mistake. And he gets out there, and we're kicking the ball and kind of passing the ball back and forth. Now, he'd already played a game that morning, kicking, playing. And finally, he says, well, Dad, let's play a real game. Here's the field. Let's run up and down the field. Mistake number two right there. I, I don't know how long it was until I got winded. I don't know how long it was till I was dying of thirst. But it, it felt like four or five hours. It was more like about 15, 20 minutes. And I, I finally told him, I said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got I to gotta get a drink. I said, let me, let me get a drink of water. I got to drink of water. You know, drinking this. I had another bottle there in the, there in the shed. I, I said, here, buddy, here, here's some water. He said, oh, I don't need it. I'm fine. Let's get back out and play. So we got back out and played a little bit. And I had a brilliant moment. One of many. I said, well, instead of us playing a game, why don't I just show you some technique, right? Let's just slow down a little bit. I'll just show you a couple things here. You know, things I learned while my, you know, professional soccer career, right? And he said, okay, so I showed him a couple things. And he said, all right, I've got it. I said, now you practice that. He says, all right, I'll practice that while we're playing a game. I said, jeez. <laughs> Nonstop. I mean, this was all night long, at least it seemed. Turns out we went inside, it was about a half hour. I thought it was all, I thought it was all night, all afternoon. I don't know what happens. I, I, I don't know what. I, kids, they have this incredible energy about them. You know, Sam, you probably noticed this with your kids. They got two speeds, fast and stop. That's it. Fast and stop. And he's always running. He's always playing. He's always excited about something. We were watching some bull riding the other day, and I have small experience in that. And we're watching this, and one of the guys that was, that was there, one of, the, one of the announcers, he talks to the room. He says, does anybody in this room, in, in this arena, want to get on one of the back of these bowls and ride it. And, of course, nobody said a word. I'm, I'm sitting on my hands. There's no way. 
But off in the distance, on the end of the road, you hear this, Woo! Little Sam standing up with his fingers, Woo! Sam, boy. I don't know if it's, it's, I don't think it's stupidity. I don't think it's foolishness. I, you know, there's just this excitement and this courage when it comes to children, when it comes to kids. It's an incredible thing. And there are things, I think, as we look at children, I think there's things that we lose, we forget about in our lives. And I think that we need to recover some of those things. I don't think we need to recover everything. You know, there's no, there's no call, there's no command for us to be childish in life. In fact, Paul says just the opposite. As I got older, I put childish ways behind me, says Paul. But there's some things that we lose. And Jesus says the same thing. He says, you've got to hang on to some of this stuff. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you, Father, for the lessons that... that, that come to us that, that we don't think about, that we don't realize sometimes are so important. We thank you, Father, that you care about us and that you challenge us with your word. We thank you also that we see fruit from it. We benefit from these things, that, that all of this is for our good. And so we thank you, Father. Help us open our eyes, our minds. Help us to, to, to be challenged. Help us to live up to so many of these challenges. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We've been talking about the crazy things of Scripture. And there's a lot of crazy stuff, or at least what seems crazy, what sounds crazy when you first hear it. Hopefully, as we go through this, we begin to realize that they're not quite so crazy. But for those who don't know Jesus or don't care about Jesus, a lot of this stuff sounds real crazy. We started it out, though, with this whole series with Be Holy. Be holy. It is a command, but it's also a gift to be separate, be unique from the rest of creation. We think be holy means be good. Well, that's not what that is. If you're, if you're salvation, if you're getting into heavens based on you being good, we're all in a lot of trouble, right? I mean, that's not going to happen for me. It's not going to happen for you. But we are called to be holy, as we look around the world, as we look, out the, look throughout history, as we look at the people around us, we know that there's a special person, there's a special uh, section of humanity that has given their life to Jesus, and we're to live that out and to show that, and, and, and this is to be readily available and seen in our lives. Holy, unique, set apart. Call it different if you want to. We get the opportunity to be different. And everyone else, it's probably good news for some of you. We also looked at eat the flesh and drink the blood, right? Eat the flesh and drink the blood. I, I, if that was the first thing I ever heard about Jesus, I wouldn't want to hear anymore. If he walks inside here and says, I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood, I'd say, that's it, I'm out. But we realize that Jesus is the life that sustains us. He is this something in our life. He is this motivating factor, but he is also this thing that gives us spiritual, emotional, mental nutrition and strength and power. Again, he says it best. His disciples are looking for food, and they come back and they see Jesus. They say, has anybody fed you? And he says, I've got food you know nothing about. I've got something in me 
that makes me continue to work and continue to teach and continue to serve and continue to live. And that is the power, that is the will, desire of God. We even went so far as to say, hate your life, didn't we? I mean, that's what Jesus says, using this, this hook to get our attention. Unless you hate your life, unless you hate your mom and dad, unless you hate your friends and family, you can't be my disciple. Well, that doesn't sound like Jesus at all. But what we found out is Jesus wants us to love everyone around us, love them incredibly, love them more and more every day. But he says, I want you to love me even more than that, because that's what it's going to take. i got to be the most important thing in your life. And church, that usually doesn't happen right away. Just like everybody else, it usually happens after you get to know who Jesus is. He becomes more and more and more important to you. But certainly, even love Him more than our own lives, that's what it means to crucify self, give up our own earthly, fleshly desires, and pursue the righteousness of Jesus. And then, of course, we believed in the impossible, the resurrection of Jesus, resurrection of Christ. In any sensible person, any rational human being, knows that that's not possible. It's not possible for somebody to be dead three days and rise again. And yet, here we are, because you believe that Jesus has the power to do that, has the power to do it for you, and has the power to do it for me. We talked about all kinds of things, and and so far we're up to last week, don't worry, don't worry. And that's probably the hardest thing we get to, don't worry. I battled with that this week. Until I went in, I sat down in the hospital room with somebody, and we, just, we started talking about worry, and we started talking about just the different struggles, and we started praying together. And, and we weren't going we to separate until we just made it, set it in our minds, and we weren't going to worry about this, because we talked to Jesus about this. And no matter worry is going to change anything. And so we refused to worry. We laid it at the feet of Christ. Worry has to be replaced. All right? Worst advice you can ever get in your life is, hey, just don't worry. All right? That doesn't, doesn't do anything. Worry has to be replaced. It has to be replaced with something beautiful. It has to be replaced with putting your life problems, issues, your thanksgiving at the feet of Christ. Worry has to be replaced or else you're just going to worry the rest of your life. And today we get to a couple of crazy things that Jesus says. Uh, three crazy things, all in one message, all in one lesson. That Jesus says, Matthew 18, starting in verse 1, he says this, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit aside, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, it sounds like, we talked about this last week, it sounds like we need to back up a little bit every time you read something like that, at that time, or who then, in their conversation. But we don't have to today, just so you're aware. Matthew constructs his, 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 his gospel account, he constructs his letter in five different discourses, Jesus with his disciples, and this is just the beginning of another discourse. They are not necessarily in chronological order, it's something you need to bear in mind as you read through it. This is the beginning of the fourth discourse, so we don't have to back up. We can start right here at that time. It's just starting a new story here, a new discourse. At that time, the disciples asked Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And this is a question that runs through your mind and my mind, perhaps all of you. But it runs through our mind often in a different way. 
It's not who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, maybe you've asked that question. But I would wager that you've also asked the question, who's the greatest in my kingdom? Who's the greatest in my worldly kingdom? Or the worldly kingdom? And if we haven't asked it outright, we might think it. By the way, that is usually where quarreling and argument and fighting and hatred and pride, that's usually where it comes from. Boil it down to this, I'm greater than you are, right? I'm greater than you are, and so we're going to have a problem, we're going to have an issue, we're going to have a quarrel, we're going to have a fight, we're going we're gonna to hate one another because I think I'm greater than you are and you think you're greater than I am. But do we ever wonder who is the greatest in the eternal kingdom of God? This God we've been, or this eternal kingdom we've been talking about. Is it right to ask the question? Is it right to want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And if it's right, how do we accomplish it? For that matter, how do we accomplish everything that we've been talking about in our pursuit of holiness? Do we care? Do we care? Sometimes that question hits us right between the eyes. Do we really care? You see, I think one of our problems is not that we ask who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, but that we never ask it. We never care. We never think about it. This was on the tip of the minds for the disciples because they spent their life and their time with Jesus. And so this was one of those questions that was just plaguing them. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because it's so real to them? Do we care? Do we even care who's the greatest? Well, first of all, is it right to ask? Well, sure it is. Sure. Ask Jesus anything you want. All right? Go into his word, ask the questions. Go into prayer and ask the questions. This increases our knowledge. It increases our wisdom and our understanding. Now, you might not like the answer, but ask the question. That's okay. But is it right to desire to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? No, that depends on the motive. Is it for Christ's glory or is it for yours? Is it for the benefit of others or is it for yours to be the greatest anywhere? We could see a request for personal glory. You've probably heard this story before. Matthew 20, this is just a couple of chapters later. Matthew 20, 20 through 21. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, they are very close to Jesus, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, this isn't the exact question of who's the greatest, but it's trying to get at the same thing. Make my sons, and possibly by extension me, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this wasn't just mom going rogue. We know in Mark chapter 10 that James and John were fully aware of this. James and John, in Mark chapter 10, the sons of Zebedee came to the teacher, said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever, you, whatever we ask. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left. What was Jesus' response to this self-motivated glory? I, I want to be great, Jesus. And I want to be great for me. And I want to sit at your right. I want to sit at your left. And I want everybody to know how great I am. Matthew 20, 22. You do not know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus says, You want to be great? You have no idea what great is. 
You have no idea how big that question is. You have no idea how big that desire is. You don't know what you're asking. And we know this was self-motivated due to Jesus' response, this teachable moment he has with the rest of his disciples, Matthew 20, 24 through 26. When the ten heard about this, the other guys, they were angry with the two brothers. Jesus called them all together and said, all right, listen up. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you guys. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. He's trying to call back James and John here. Guys, you're getting this wrong. That's not what this is about. Asking this question about being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is not about your glory. Asking this question about being great in your own kingdom is not about your glory. Speaking of servant, what are we asking when we talk about the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And why would we want to be great? Going back to Matthew 18, verses 2 and 3, they asked him the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him, placed the child among them, and said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to read that again. He said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Greatest? Greatest? You're talking about greatest? You're asking about greatest? What he says, if you don't become like children, you won't even enter it. You're not even there. Forget about greatest. Forget about who's the best. Or who's the grandest or the strongest. If you do not become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That leads us right to this question that we've been asking throughout this whole series. A couple questions. Well, one of them, whose kingdom are you living in? Whose kingdom? Your kingdom? Your castles? Your structures? Your life? Your decision? Your power? Or are you pursuing the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Where do you reside? And by the way, when we hear something like this, I'd ask the question, if you say you reside in the kingdom of Jesus, are you sure? Are you sure? It's the difference between believing in God and believing God. It's easy for us to roll our eyes at a lesson like this, right? You know, think about the children. Oh boy, here we go. It's easy to do that. And why? Because we often see kids, children, as small, weak, unknowledgeable, lacking wisdom, right? What we're really saying is this. I don't want to be like a child because kids are naive. Kids are naive. Well, our kids aren't, right? Other people's kids are, right? Our kids are wonderful. Everybody else's kids are, need a lesson, right? Naive means two things, two different definitions for naive. And one is what we might call negative. The other one's not. The first definition for naive is showing lack of experience, lack of wisdom, and lack of judgment. Well, we don't want to be like that. That's not what we're called to do throughout Scripture. So if we're called to be naive children, it sounds like we're called to be something wrong, something bad, something that lacks wisdom, something that lacks judgment. But that's only one definition. There's actually literally two definitions of naive. The second definition is this, natural and unaffected, innocent. I look at Sam, 
You probably look your kids get upset, sad about the this spiritual, mental, emotional pollution of the world. Struggles that they're going to have to go through. You've probably looked at kids before and said, boy, I just wish they could keep this beauty, keep this innocence. What you're saying is I wish they could keep some of this naive tendency. And James agrees, James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, that is care for those, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now go back to that definition of naive, natural, unaffected, innocent. Jesus says the greatest are those who go back to the way they saw the world and lived through it while they were children. There's so much we forget. There's so much we think we grow into, or rather, and what we end up doing is grow out of. We forget courage. We forget obedience. We forget humility. Just as a child relies on their parents for life, for love, for opportunity, growth, safety, provision, and practically everything else, so we must rely upon Jesus and trust that He loves us and sustains us. And and if you're struggling with this today, if you're struggling with whether or not you can give your life to Christ, whether or not He's going to forgive you, whether or not He loves you, you could look upon children as, as well. They have no achievements or accomplishments in their lives, no kingdoms or castles that they've built, no love that they've earned, yet we cherish them all the same. And not only that, if they would suggest that they could earn your love, it would almost be offensive, wouldn't it? Jesus says, become like children. They have complete trust and must have that trust day by day. Sam never comes home and, you know, wants to bring up the bank account, you know, on the computer. Hey, Dad, let me check this out. I want to see what you've been doing today. We'll make sure we're all right. He never comes home and says, hey, you want me to run to the store and pick up groceries for the family? Doesn't do this, doesn't do that. He's got this trust. Kids do with their parents. It's the way it is. Now, it's something... Incredible when a life is completely in the hands of, of, of another. It's a trusting dependence. We get sidetracked and we feel that we have to build our own kingdom to find our worth or our value. It's so, it is so wrong. It is so <laughs> the opposite of what real life is. It is the opposite of what real worth is. It is the opposite of what real value is. That we have to be greater than the next guy in order to be loved and appreciated, in order to see success. And I got news for you. You will always be disappointed. Always. Always. If that's what you're pursuing. Now to pursue it, to love it, to do it, grow up a something, a business, whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with that. That's honorable. But to do it to find your worth. To do it to find your value. You will always be disappointed. It will never be enough. Besides that, there's always somebody bigger that comes along. If that's the case, Jesus tells us we're moving in the wrong direction. Matthew 18, 4, Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
And again, <clears throat> children have these two characteristics about them, a lot of characteristics, but two that we lose as we grow, grow older. Number one is this, humility. Humility. Often children need to seek, do not need to seek humility because it's bestowed upon them in that time of life. Parents say do or don't do, and we obey most of the time. And this is the, the nature of that relationship, and over time it changes a little bit. Not the honor given, but obedience with full understanding and dialogue begins. It's the same way we treat our Heavenly Father. Trust and obey. Now I can ask questions and I begin to understand and realize why. Humility. And of course the other thing that children have is courage. Children have courage about them to say or do things that must be said or done. And why? Because their first priority is obedience to their parents and desire to please them. That's what children think. Look, if it's okay with mom and dad, I don't have anything to fear. And, and, and we go through life knowing that there are things that are right and good with our Heavenly Father, and yet we still fear them. We're still scared of them. We don't have this courage about us that children do. <clears throat> Again, childlike, not childish, not goofy and irresponsible and lazy and those types of things. But childlike mentally, it allows us to embrace holiness. It's a simple trust that Jesus assigns to the very greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Sadly, that's not what many people think because we're far too concerned with our temporary kingdom than God's eternal one. God's eternal kingdom starts now and it's going to go through the rest of eternity. Your kingdom is going to end at some moment, at some time. And this leads us back to the statement we said at the very beginning. Perhaps a problem we have is not that we care too much about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, but that we care too little. We ought to care more. It's our responsibility to nurture this mentality in ourselves, our families, other people around us, and never, never, never look down on those who have this complete trust in who Jesus is, childlike. Jesus says this in 18.5, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And bear in mind, who is this child? It's not a young kid in years we're talking about here, although that may be the case. But it's those who are pursuing a complete dependence upon Jesus for everything in their lives. It's those who are, 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 are new in their understanding of Jesus, early in their walk. But consider Jesus' words. Those who welcome one who has this full and simple trusting dependence on Christ in every aspect in their life, Jesus says, you welcome me, the God of gods, into your home. And the opposite is also true. You want to reject somebody who has this, this almost hard to understand trust and peace and joy and who Jesus is. You want to reject that. You want to look down upon that. We reject and look down upon Jesus Christ. So don't look down on others. Don't look down on yourself or feel that you're missing out of life because you define your life by trust in Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of life. Charles Spurgeon once said, if God has called you to be his servant, do not stoop to be a king. And we have the opportunity to be servants of God. The world thinks that the highest calling on earth is to be the king. Jesus says that's completely the opposite. How serious is he about this? Look at 18, 6, and 7. This is one of those things we read that we think, did Jesus really say that? You talk about crazy. Wait a minute now. Does Jesus really say this? 
If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me, that is those who are pursuing a childlike faith. Again, it doesn't have anything to do with age and years, all right? If he causes any one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Yeah, Jesus just said that. It'd be better for this person to be killed. It would be better for this person to die. To lead somebody astray. Lead somebody away from a childlike faith. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things, look, they're going to come. But woe to the person through whom they come. This is admittedly a crazy thing to hear Jesus say. But he is driving home the point. He is so very serious about this that he wants complete trust in him. And you'd better not stand in the way of anybody who has that. If someone causes another to give up this childlike faith, to entice them with the world's kingdoms instead of Christ, the one who commits such a horrendous act would be better off dead. In fact, both of them would be better off if the one who committed the act was dead. That's what Jesus is saying. He realizes bad things are going to happen. He realizes temptations are going to occur in a fallen world. But he says, do not be the instrument through which these bad things come. And if you find that you are the cause... If you find that you have a problem with leading others to the world rather than to Christ, if you find that you're leading others into the world instead of their belief in Christ, this is a good day for you. Because our eyes are open to it. The mirror is shown before us. And we have the opportunity to make that correction. Jesus says you better address it seriously and immediately in your life because you are dealing with some very dangerous things. What's he say, 18, 8 through 9, again, a crazy thing that Jesus says. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. You've got to take some drastic action. If you're leading people away from Christ, if you care more about your kingdom than you care about the kingdom of Christ and other people are following you along the way, you better take some drastic action. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble... And gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. And this isn't literal, you know, self-mutilation. That wouldn't change the heart anyway, would it? Jesus is using just very strong hyperbole here to drive home the seriousness of sin. How it corrupts, not just us, but it corrupts people around us. You have to cut away the temptations in your life that cause you to reject who Jesus is. Because it's a lot better for you to lose that than to lose everything. Mark chapter 8, what's it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul in the process? Bottom line is this. Jesus says in 18.10, See that you do not despise these little ones. Little ones. Again, don't just be thinking little kids. It's just the imagery he's using. The ones who have complete trust in Jesus. He says this is what you pursue in life. This is what makes life worth living. And this is what is assurance in life. Don't despise these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, by the way, that's not suggesting each person has a guardian angel, okay? That's, that's made up. Okay, it might sound nice, but that's made up. 
Jesus is telling us not to belittle believers in Jesus Christ and pursue this incredible trust in who and what He is to define your life. And He takes it, He takes, this is the strongest language that Jesus uses in Scripture. Have a millstone tied around your neck. He says, take it seriously. Because if you spurn those who believe in Jesus, you're not just spurning them. You're spurning things that you can't even possibly imagine. He says, even the angels in heaven who look upon the face of God and wait to build what you might be tearing down. He says, that's the company you're in. It's a strange thing. It's a hard thing. And yes, it sounds kind of crazy for Jesus to say that we need to be childlike. But that's the refreshment of our soul. That's the renewal of this creation and the complete trust that we have. There's incredible things that we can see in the lives of children if we'll take a moment to watch, to listen, to learn. Oh, they've got things to learn as well. But sometimes our wisdom needs to go backwards. Our wisdom needs to be changed into trust, into hope, into certainty in Christ. And use God Himself for your definition. You talk about freedom. That's freedom. That's freedom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can learn through a very, very, it's hard for us to hear Jesus say stuff like this, Father. It's just a hard, it's a hard lesson. It, those are just such strong words coming out of his mouth. But Father, help us to take it as seriously as Jesus does. That we can have a complete and utter transformation to go back to what it knows to trust completely, fully, everything that you are. To give us life, to give us provision, to give us hope and joy. To give us direction. To give us all of these wonderful things that, that children see in our lives and our homes. Father, help us to be more childlike in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing.
think for a second that this childlike faith is disconnected from lack of worry. This is where your father says, don't worry, I'll get you where you need to go. We were going to a soccer game yesterday, and Sam didn't know where the soccer field was. And he kept asking about it, asking about it, back of the car. Finally, I turned around and said, Sam, don't worry. I said, I'll get you where you need to go. I'll get you where you need to go. And it's just trust. It's this trust that we have in our Father. He says the same thing. It helps with that worry. He says, don't worry. I'll get you where you need to go. I'll get you where you need to go. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you that you care about us and that you can't 